everybody. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 108. And today we're going to do things a little bit differently. I know I always say get on your shoes, go out for a walk, let's fold that laundry, let's do something productive, let's clean out the pantry, whatever it is. I like it when you do productive things. Mostly I like it when you exercise and get outdoors while you listen. But today's a little bit more of a working session. So before you get started, you need to get to your computer and I want you to print something out or have it up on your computer while we talk. So in this episode, we'll be going through my brain sheet and how I use it in depth to receive and then give excellent end of shift reports. So we're going to be looking at a one patient brain sheet, like what you might use for a critical patient. So if you're going into your advanced med surge, that's the one that you'll use. And we'll also look at one that I use when I'm taking care of multiple patients, like if you're working on the floor. So when I was doing um, our hospital used to float the ICU patients to areas like telemetry, they don't do that anymore. But when I would float to someplace like telemetry, then I would have a different type of report sheet for taking care of multiple, like up to four or so patients. So we're going to be looking at those. So if you go to straightynursingstudent.com forward slash 108, the links will be right there and you can download those or just have them up on your computer if you don't want to print them. No problem there. And then we'll get to work. So while you're doing that, let's take a moment and we'll do our listener shout out. And this one, you guys, is from this might be my best um, listener name ever. It's Psycho Bacon from Canada. So this individual says... Mo is a very good teacher. She's straight to the point. She makes even the harder concepts easier to understand. You can tell she puts a lot of thought and work into her podcasts. I started listening at the beginning of third year, and now I am finishing up my fourth. It's a good resource all around to help you with nursing school exams, HESI, A&P, NCLEX prep, and if you need a refresher as a nurse. Thank you for everything, Mo. Well, Psycho Bacon, my new friend from Canada, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate that so much. You took the time to write a review, to subscribe to the podcast, and share how much it's helped you. So hopefully you sharing that will help another student decide to take the plunge, invest half an hour, listen to one podcast, hopefully get hooked and come back for more because my mission is to help as many students as possible. So thank you for helping me in that. Okay, so do you guys have your brain sheets printed? If you haven't or you have them up on your computer, then pause the podcast, get that together, and then meet me back here. So let's start with the one patient brain sheet first because it goes into a lot more detail and then it'll be easier to look at the multiple patient brain sheet, which is a very much pared down version of this. So you have your brain sheet in front of you now, I hope, and you'll see across the top that there is some space for just some basic things. So I like to put my patient sticker up in that top left corner. So patient sticker goes there. That sticker is going to tell me the patient's name. It's going to tell me their date of birth. It's going to tell me their admit date. I believe our stickers have the admit date on them. So it's going to give you, and their medical record number, so it's going to give you some information that you will use multiple times throughout the day. And then I like to put what room number they're in. Code obviously is for their code status. That's definitely something that you want to know at all times for your patient. Most patients will be a full code, um, and that's 
very normal. Some patients will be a do not resuscitate. They don't want you to um, try to resuscitate them if they if they do pass. And then there is also something called a limited code. And you will see a lot of patients, not a lot, but a fair amount, enough that it's common enough in the vernacular, will be a limited code. And when a patient is a limited code, just know that you need to ask for the specifics because the limited code will be based on their wishes. Maybe if they've filled out a post form or something like that that says, I don't want compressions, but do the medications, which, you know, if you don't have a heartbeat, your heart's not pumping, the medications really aren't going to circulate. But it is a common form of limited code that people will choose, or maybe they will be, um, they will specify, um, don't um, don't intubate me if I go into respiratory failure, or maybe they'll specify um, uh, compressions are okay, no shocks, or shocks are okay, no compressions. Like it can be whatever they want. So you have to understand their specifics if it is a limited code. Otherwise, it's full code or do not resuscitate. So that's what goes there. And then where it says MD, I like to put down who the attending physician or physician team is. At my hospital, we have hospitalist teams, different, um, you know, it's like, I think they're colors now, but they used to be numbers like team seven or team five. That's so you know who to call if you have an issue or need something for your patient. If there's a uh, specialist on the case or more than one specialist like nephrology or neurology or GI or cardiology, you want to know that those in a specialist are on board as well. And then I like to write down their main diagnosis. What diagnosis are they here for? A lot of patients will have a very extensive medical history. Don't put all that here. Just put the diagnosis like their main hospital problem. They may have more than one, but what's the key issue? Is it respiratory failure? Are they an acute on chronic COPD exacerbation? Are they a heart failure? Did they have a CVA, a stroke? Why are they here? What's their main problem? And then for allergies, a lot of times patients will have a whole list of allergies. If that's the case, I might go into the record quickly and see if uh, what they are and how severe they are. Because if I, I can't, I don't have room here to write down 10 allergies. But if eight of those are things like I'm allergic to cat fur, um, I get a stomach upset when I take clindamycin, um, I get diarrhea when I take um, flagell. You know, some of those are like bad side effects and a lot of patients will call those allergies and we still, we put them in the record so that we know. But if I see that the patient has throat swelling, anaphylaxis, severe rash, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, a really bad reaction or an actual allergy to a medication, I make sure I make note of that here. But I'll also write down multiple, or I put like two plus signs, which is my abbreviation for multiple, so that I know they actually have a lot of allergies that I need to be aware of, but they have anaphylactic reaction to penicillin, and I'm going to be super hyper aware of that. So knowing their allergies is very important to providing safe patient care. Okay, so then looking at this whole form in general, you notice that it's organized according to S-BAR, which is the preferred communication format in the clinical setting. It's an abbreviated, organized way to convey information. So S stands for situation, B stands for the background of the patient, A stands for assessment, and R is your recommendation. So I organize my brain sheet this way because it just makes sense and it keeps me really organized. So under situation, I have some things there, the safety and the isolation. They're simply there because there wasn't any place else for me to really fit them on this form. So just know that those are just kind of overview general things. And so for safety, I might just check off um, if they're confused. I've got that there. If they're a fall risk, you will notice that most patients in the hospital are considered a fall risk for whatever reason. You want to be especially aware of the patients that are really, really fall risk. So 
Um, we do have a policy at our hospital that all patients call us for assistance before they get out of bed. And then, you know, if it's clear that they're getting up fine, that may lighten a little bit. But when they first get there, the rules are call before you get up, we'll come help you. And then as the nurse, you can assess their gait, their balance, you know, do they get dizzy? Are they safe to get out of bed and walk around? And a lot of times they're just fine, but a lot of times they definitely need help because they are a true fall risk. Um, if the patient is on restraints, you definitely need to know about that. If the bed alarm is set, and um, maybe it should be, so you might want to make sure that the bed alarm is set. And then if they are on suicide precautions, that simply means that you know they'll have a one-to-one observation. They'll get trays that don't have any cutlery or any, you know, any sharp objects. They're basically paper trays with paper, um, uh, like to-go containers, so that they can't turn any of those things into a weapon and harm themselves. So that's that. And then for isolation, you know, either no isolation, maybe they're on contact or droplet or airborne or neutropenic precautions, you would need to know about that. If you were going to add one, I would probably add the seizure um, precautions up there under that safety area, just because that is another um, risk for the patient um, getting hurt. Okay, and then under that is the actual situation area. So what I put here is... Um, when they got here and why are they here, basically. So their admit date, did they come from the ER? So that part that says from, I like to put, you know, ER, or maybe they came from an outside hospital. A lot of times, depending on, let's say you work in a large hospital in a big city, then your hospital is going to have services that maybe the smaller hospitals in the outlying areas don't have. So a lot of times, patients will come to that big city hospital for that specialty service, like maybe a GI con consult or a vascular surgeon, something special like that, a neurointerventionist, something like that. So you want to know where they came from and why. So did they come from, did they go to the ER because they've had abdominal pain for five days? Did they show up in the ER because they've been short of breath for a week? Why did they show up? What was their initial complaint? What was their reason? Why were they concerned? Why did they come in? Or if they came from an outside hospital, was it for that specialty consult? Was it simply for um, a higher level of care? Maybe their ICU is, you know, got four beds, ours has 30. They ran out of beds. They needed to come to us for an ICU bed. Whatever the reason is, just why are they here? And then I do a brief overview of their hospital course, especially with these critical patients. You kind of want to know, did they come in? Did they go to the floor and then decompensate and then come to the ICU? And then they were actively bleeding and then they went to interventional radiology and got that fixed. And then they came, you know, back to the ICU. Then they went to the floor. Then they developed another problem like their basic overview of their hospital course and just the highlights. It doesn't have to be every single accounting of every single day, but the highlights, okay? And then I like to jot down just quickly what tests have been done, you know, that are outside of the ordinary. Um, obviously, if you're intubated, you're getting chest x-rays, but did you have an abdominal ultrasound? Did you have an echo of your heart? Did you have an MRI of your brain? So what tests have been done? And then for background, this is where you can get into a little bit more of that patient's um, overall picture. So past medical history, not a ton of space here. And some patients, you will use all of this space and more to write down their past medical history. So I always encourage people to use abbreviations as much as you can. You know, don't write out congestive heart failure. You'll write CHF. You're not going to write out... Um, respiratory failure. That's way too long. You'll write RF. I like to write RF for respiratory failure. And then to differentiate that from renal failure, which would also be RF, I put a little N. So capital R, lowercase n, capital F. For me, that's renal failure. You might have a different system. That's fine. But um, that's what I do. And that's what helps me. Sleep apnea, um, I write SA or OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, you know, COPD. Um, for surgery, I use an abbreviation, capital S, lowercase x. Um, for fractures, when I was working in a trauma unit, I would put a capital F, lowercase x for fractures. So 
either either there's already a standard abbreviation that you can use or you know you can make your own whatever works for you so in my course crucial concepts boot camp i go over some of the most common medical abbreviations so if you guys are interested in um, learning something about that that course might be helpful for you i will link to the uh, waitlist form for that it does open again in july it opens three times per year um, and in between, you can always get on the wait list so that you get a reminder for when it does open. And then it opens up right before the semester starts so that you go through the course and then you're pumped and ready and super prepared for school. So that's just one of the things that we do there. Okay, and then in psychosocial, I like to put here any psychosocial issues. Uh, maybe they've got uh, 14 kids and they're all fighting about what dad's care should be. That's important to know. Um because you would want to get social work involved with that. Do they have, um, are they homeless? That would be a psychosocial issue that might um, affect their discharge. Like how are we going to safely discharge this individual if they're now in full renal failure and they're homeless? Well, that's going to be a challenge for the case manager to figure out, you know, where are they going to go? How are we going to care for this individual? So any psychosocial things go there. Maybe there's a wife and a girlfriend, you know, I mean, this stuff happens, you guys. So um, also, is there a password? A lot of times families will say we only want you know, our inner circle to um, call for updates. We like to limit how many people call for updates because you can't have 15 people calling for updates. And really, we only give updates to um, immediate family or the decision maker. But sometimes there'll be a password. Like if the patient, if the person doesn't know the password, they can't get any information. But everybody that calls with the password is fine to release information to. So whatever, any psychosocial stuff I put there. And then if there's a decision maker, if the patient's unable to make their own decisions, who is that person? Is it their spouse? Is it their daughter? Is it their parent? Is it their niece? Is it their cousin? Whoever it is. So that is all very important information. So then we'll get into the A, the assessment part. So when we get into this component, we're going to be writing down the assessment from the prior shift, the RN that you are getting report from. You want to know what they've obsessed, and then you will do your own assessment and go on about your shift from there and update your report sheet as things change because they always do. And hopefully they're changing as the patient is improving. That's not always the case, especially in critical care, but that's always your goal to progress the patient toward um, that goal, whatever their goal is. And in most, pa most patients, it's to get better and get home, right? So we hope to see good positive changes in your um, assessment as you go throughout the day or if you're taking care of the same patient for multiple days in a row over the course of that time. So we look at their temperature. I always want to know if they've spiked a fever and what their highest fever was for that the prior shift, whether the prior shift was the nights um, and I'm coming in as the day shift nurse or if I'm coming in as the night shift nurse, what the day shift highest temp was. That's called the T-max, the temperature max. And then I want to know if the patient's been having pain, what their pain rating is, where it is, any issues surrounding that. And then for neuro, so you'll see four numbers there, four, three, two, one. So this has to do with how oriented the patient is. So if they only know their name, if they're oriented only to person then you circle the number one. If they're oriented to who they are and they know they're in the hospital, so that's oriented to person and place, then you circle that number two. If they know who they are, they know where they are, and they can tell you the date or get pretty close. Like if you ask me the date, I'm going to be hard pressed to tell you exactly the date. And there's sometimes guys when I barely know what day of the week it is, but I should be able to, be, I should be pretty close, right? Um, if they tell you it's 1982, then they're definitely off. But if they're off on their day by a tiny bit, I usually don't um, dock them for this. But again, you want to know the situation of the patient as well. So knowing who they are, where they are, and when they are, that's being oriented to person, place, and time. So you would circle the number three. 
Now, if they know who they are, where they are, when they are, and why they are there, then that is being oriented to person, place, time, and situation. And that would be the circling the number four. So that would be the best, right? The patient is oriented times four. Sometimes you don't see people um, assessing for that situation component and may it may just be alert and oriented times three. That doesn't always mean that the patient doesn't know why they're in the hospital. It might just mean that the person doing the assessment didn't ask that question. It's not as common to assess for situation as it is to just say, what's your name? Do you know where you are? What year is it? Or what day is it? Or what's the date? Okay, and then over on the right is a checkbox for a EVD, which is an extraventricular drain. I used to work in an ICU that took care of all kinds of patients, including patients having neurological surgeries and interventions, and a lot of times they would come out with an EVD. So I would check that box if they had an EVD. And then RAS and CAM. So these are two tools that we use to help us decrease the severity, incidence, duration of something called ICU delirium. So when we look at the RAS, that's the Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale. And that is a scale, I think it's negative five to positive five. And that would be you're totally unresponsive to any kind of stimuli, even painful stimuli patient, that would be that negative five RAS. And then that positive five would be the patient who is just outbursts, um, wildly thrashing, you cannot do any care at all. So Ideally, your patient is a zero. That just means they're calm and normal. It's not at all um, abnormal to have a patient be a negative one or a positive one. A negative one would, might just be that they're just slightly drowsy or they wake easily when you wake them up. And then that positive one, maybe they're mildly anxious or mildly more active than normal, but it's definitely not disruptive. And then... Um, the reason we use the scale is, especially with our sedated patients, it's the Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale. So patients that are intubated, patients that are having delirium can be very agitated, and a lot of times we do sedation for these patients. Okay, you're intubated, that's really uncomfortable, we're going to sedate you, keep you comfortable, but we don't want to sedate you too much, and we also want to keep track of how agitated you are so that we dose you appropriately. So a lot of times the medications that we use to do the sedation will be prescribed to achieve a RAS between, you know, Neg like around negative two would be considered kind of an optimal sedation. The patient's comfortable. They're not thrashing about. They're not doing any of that. They're not fighting the ventilator, but they wake up, they can follow commands. And then when they're not stimulated, they go back to sleep basically. So you'll see, you know, titrate to a RAS of negative two or RAS of negative one or whatever the provider, the medical provider, the writer of the prescription wants. And that is to prevent us over-sedating our patients because using, you know, um, sedating agents does increase the risk of ICU delirium. And I should actually do a whole podcast about ICU delirium because it is fascinating and horrifying at the same time. And then CAM, that is the... It stands for, gosh, I don't even know what it stands for. It's an assessment that we do. It's called the CAM-ICU. And this is another way to detect if patients are going into that acute delirium. This would not necessarily be a, a meaningful exam on someone who has dementia because their baseline is to be confused. Um, but basically what we do with the CAM is we ask them to squeeze our hand when we say the letter A, and then we spell out a phrase, and it's save a heart, but it's spelled weird. It's S-A-V-E-A-H-A-A-R-T. So there's a lot of A's in there. Um, so we want them to squeeze our hand when we say the letter A. And you'll notice that some patients will squeeze your hand on every letter. Um, maybe they'll miss a few. But most of the time, if the patient's CAM negative, which means they don't have signs of acute delirium, they're going to squeeze your hand appropriately on the letter A. Okay? Um, and then the next thing we do, like say they 
fail that part, we go and we dig a little deeper and we ask them some questions. And I don't have the whole CAM ICU assessment memorized, but it's things like, um, does a stone float on water? We want to we want to test their their like reasoning and judgment. Um, does a stone float on water? Um, hopefully they say no, but then they might say, well, a pumice stone might, which yeah, that's true. It might. Um, and then, you know, they're just being sassy. So, um, another one is something like, do you use a hammer to pound a nail? Hopefully they say yes. Another question is something along the lines of, does a pound of nails weigh more or a pound of stones weigh more than a pound of feathers or something like that? So you're testing their, uh, their, you know, their ability to, um, you know, do reasoning, you know, that's logical. So anyway, if they're CAM positive, we want to make sure the MD knows it might be because we've induced a bit of ICU delirium in this patient. So we want to um, address that through, you know, pulling back on pharmacological things that can contribute. And there's a lot of other interventions. And I promise I will do a whole uh, episode about ICU delirium and the ways that we try to avoid that. Okay, so that's what that section is. And then the bottom, it says GCS. That's your Glasgow coma score. That's going to rate the patient's um, best response are their eyes opening spontaneously? That's the best response. Do they not open at all, even when you give painful stimuli? So they're eye opening. And then their motor response. Are they following commands, moving purposefully, all of that? Or do they only move when you rub on their sternum and cause pain? Or do they not move at all? And then there's their verbal response. Are they oriented? Are they confused? Are they making, um, are they using inappropriate words that don't make sense? Are they just making sounds that aren't really words, or do they not make any response at all? So you'll give them a score on their Glasgow Coma Scale. And then I would say another one that you would put here if you are taking care of stroke patients would be their NIH score. That's a whole other thing. We can talk about that a lot as well as a whole episode, but it has to do with uh monitoring a patient's neurological deficits or neurological improvement with stroke treatment interventions and um, the severity of that stroke. Okay, so that would be the neuro section. And then you'll notice there's like a blank spot basically in the middle of all of these boxes. And that would be where you would write any particulars like left side weaker than right side or um, thinks he's on a boat or whatever. So you would put any particulars there. And some patients will be so confused, they will think things like that. I had a patient once who just was swore up and down. We were at his aunt's house and why was I at his aunt's house and he was going to call the police on us because he wanted us out of his aunt's house and there was just no convincing this poor man that he was not at his aunt's and he was in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, it was a long night for me and for him too, I think. Okay, so in the next section we have cardiac EF is ejection fraction, and you guys will learn about that. You might be introduced to it a bit in your first med surge course. You'll definitely be talking about it a lot more in your advanced med surge course, and that just has to do with how well the heart is pumping. Um, basically, that's shorthand version, so all you need to know is um, if their ejection fraction is low, um, that would be your patient with, you know, like a cardiomyopathy, some kind of dysfunction of their heart. The thing with the ejection fraction that you want to know is when was that measurement taken because ejection fractions can improve over time. They can also worsen over time. So your patient with, you know, severe heart failure, it's probably going to decline. But a lot of times patients... You know, maybe they'll have an acute myocardial infarction. Their ejection fraction will initially be kind of not great. And then um, with their pharmacol pharmacological regimen, they make good lifestyle changes. They take good care of themselves. They come back later and their ejection fraction has improved. So you want to know when that last um, assessment was done. And that's, um, that's what that echo date means. Echo is an echocardiogram and that can measure the ejection fraction. So I just like to write down when they had their last echo because somebody could ask you that. You know, if you say the EF is 25%, what was that an, uh, an echo done yesterday or was that an echo done four years ago? So they may want to do a repeat to see where that's at. And then what rhythm is the patient in? Are they in normal sinus rhythm? Are they sinus bradycardia? Are they in atrial fibrillation? 
whatever it is. And then again, a blank spot for you to write any particulars there. For hemodynamics, I'm going to be interested in the patient's blood, pres blood pressure, basically, and then if they're on any hemodynamic monitoring. So um, we do, I need to add a little line item for this, but the way we measure hemodynamics right now in the facility I work at is through non-invasive cardiac output monitoring called NICOM. We use that. That can tell us cardiac output, cardiac index, stroke volume, stroke volume index, all these things that you'll learn about in your advanced med surge class. And you could write those things down here, the important things that you need to know. I also like to do a little checkbox there if they have an A-line, which is an arterial line, which is a way to measure blood pressure in the moment. It's real-time blood pressure measurement. It's a catheter with pressure tubing attached and that catheter goes right into an artery and you can get readings off the patient's blood pressure in real time. So your critically ill patient who um, is hemodynamically unstable will have an arterial line in place. CVP monitoring, we don't do that as much now. We do more the NICOM type non-invasive monitoring, but occasionally you may see CVP monitoring. So that's there. And when I made this sheet, we were using it a lot to guide our sepsis management. And then SWAN would be a um, an invasive line. You might see this if you're in a cardiovascular surgery intensive care unit, you know, measuring things like pulmonary artery pressures, pulmonary wedge pressures, things like that. Okay, and then going down to the next row in that respiratory segment, I've got checkboxes all along the right. Um, if the lungs are clear, quick checkbox done, can move on. ET means do they have an ET tube, an endotracheal tube? Are they intubated? Or do they have a trach? That would be the next line down. The next one down is chest tube. And then below that, you see IS. That's the incentive spirometer. That's that little exerciser. I call it the lung exerciser that the patient uses to take those big deep breaths in and, and it raises the little, um, I don't know what it is, sometimes a little ball, um, sometimes it's like a little accordion thing and it lifts up as they breathe in and they can see how deep a breath they're taking. It gives them incentive so they can exercise their lungs that way. So I want to know if they're using the incentive spirometer. And then I would put here in the little blank area how much oxygen they're on. Are they getting, you know, do they wear a CPAP or a BiPAP at night when they're sleeping? Um, are they getting NEB treatments from the respiratory therapist? Whatever respiratory stuff that I need to know. And then PF ratio, that is a calculation that you'll learn about in your advancement surge course. And it's part of the diagnostic criteria for patients um, in acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. So um, I have... Did I do a podcast about the PF ratio? I don't think that I did. I think I just wrote about it on the website. It's actually one of my most popular blog posts, um, which is kind of funny. Um, so if you look up PF ratio on the straightingnursingstudent.com website, I just do a brief little thing about it and how you calculate it and what it means. Okay, so vent settings, if they're not on a vent, obviously you would skip this part. You won't be taking care of patients on vents um, until you're in your advanced med surge course. So um, if you're a first semester student, you know, this won't really come into play. But off to the right there, I've got two checkboxes, RT. I would check if they're on respiratory protocol, um, getting respiratory treatments, things like that. And then um, because some physicians prefer to manage the vent themselves and some prefer to have the respiratory therapist manage it. So um, it just depends. And then ARDS would be a specific protocol. There is an ARDS protocol for patients that have acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the way the vent is run on those patients is different than on um, maybe a patient who just has some, uh, you know, they're there for asthma or whatever. And then with the vent settings, I want to know the mode that the ventilator is on, how much oxygen, that's the FiO2, pressure support, PEEP, tidal volumes, rate. And I want to know these things at the start of the shift because as I'm working with the respiratory therapist and the patient, hopefully we can get these numbers to improve and get the patient closer to weaning, like we're always trying to wean the vent. So we're adjusting these numbers, hopefully 
in a good direction and getting that patient closer to doing their spontaneous breathing trials and possibly getting extubated. And then you know over the course of the day, let's say your FiO2 started at 40 and at the end of the day it's 80, the patient has obviously taken a a, a turn for the worse. So keeping track of those changes. Okay, under GI, I've got checkboxes for things like NG tube. So that's a tube that goes into their nose and into their G, their gastric. NG tube, basically, we use these to feed patients. We use these to decompress um, the bowel, like put it to low wall section, pull out, like maybe they've got... um, a small bowel obstruction and that all that gastric juices are just accumulating in the stomach and they're throwing up constantly, NG tube can just get that stuff out of there so that they're not constantly throwing up. Um, And I also said for feeding, okay, OG tube, same concept. It just goes in the mouth, the oral gastric tube. And the reason we do it this way is with intubated patients. So the NG tube with the the tube going into the the nares can cause skin breakdown. And that's, it's okay, probably, you know, most patients it's okay for it for a day or two. But if you've got an intubated patient, you know, they can be intubated for a while. So we don't want that skin breakdown. We put it in through the mouth and it goes in, you know, we intubate. We also throw an OG tube in and um, it's just, you know, it's better for, for the patient in that way. So that's what OG means. And then PEG would be that percutaneous feeding tube that just goes right into the wall of the abdomen. A lot of patients will have PEGs like your long-term um, vent patient with a tracheostomy. They're going to have a PEG tube. And then low wall suction is LWS. You know, say you've got that NG tube in and because the patient's there for pancreatitis and they're just vomiting constantly, well, an NG tube is often part of the treatment plan because it just, that vomiting goes away because we're pulling that stuff out of the stomach and the patient's not throwing up constantly. You know, the patient could be on low wall suction for all kinds of reasons, but that's um, a reason. So I would check if it is on to low wall suction. And then C. diff, as you know, you've probably heard of C. diff, very contagious, very transmittable um, pathogen. I want to know if they have that. And then maybe their C. diff finally comes back negative and I can circle that negative box and get them off isolation. Um, but C. diff is definitely something you want to be aware of. And then their last bowel movement. Um, dietary will ask you about this. The MD will ask you about this. When you transfer the patient to the floor, they will ask about this. Everybody wants to know about everybody's bowel habits. So make sure you ascertain the patient's uh, last bowel movement if they just got to you in the hospital. And if um, you're taking report, ask when it was because they may need some bowel care, okay? And then what diet are they on? Are they on a regular diet? Are they on tube feeds? Are they on a carbohydrate controlled diet, a cardiac diet, a renal diet? Do they have a fluid restriction? Whatever it is, you want to put that in there as well. GU, the next section there on the right, refers to genitourinary. So that would be if they have a Foley catheter, I would check that. Um, we also use some external catheter devices. One is called the PureWick. I think that's the brand name. That's the female external catheter. And then the condom catheter would be the external um, catheter for a male patient. So if I was going to redo this sheet, I would add external on here as well. BRP means, or sorry, BSC, I skipped one. BSC means the patient's getting up to the bedside commode. BRP means the MD has said they need to stay in bed, except I will give them bathroom privileges. They can get up to go to the bathroom, but that's it. They want them resting otherwise. And uric means they don't make any urine at all. And then dialysis obviously means they're on dialysis. So just be aware that just because your patient is on dialysis does not mean they make no urine. One of the first questions I ask my dialysis patients is, do you still make some urine? And a lot of times they'll say, yeah, a little bit, like 200 mils a day or, you know, 100 mils a day or whatever. Um, You want to know because you want to be, you know, if they're incontinent, you want to know that. They may need to get up to go to the commode. They may need the bedpan, you know, just so you're aware of, of what their needs are and what you can expect from them. If they say, yeah, normally I am I do about 200 mils a day and suddenly they're not doing any, well, that's something you'd want to let the nephrologist know, okay? All right, and then the next section you see is a bunch of in and outs, in and outs. So that is their intake and their output. 
You want to keep track of the fluids that they bring in and how much goes out. So um, that's um, especially helpful in your patients who are on a fluid restriction or who are getting fluid overloaded or potential for fluid overload, who have uh, congestive heart failure, have any renal issues, anything like that. So we just keep track of their I's and O's is what you'll hear it called. And then overall fluid balance is something that is important to know. Let's say your patient is suddenly short of breath and you listen to their lungs and they sound really wet. And then you look and they are three liters positive. So they've brought in three liters more than they have um, basically peed out. So there's a real suspicion there that this patient has some pulmonary edema um, looking at their you know their short of breath maybe their oxygen saturation level is low um, their wet lung sounds their positive fluid balance so you would that information you'd want to let the MD know so that they could um, prescribe the most appropriate treatment which for this patient and for a lot of patients would be a diuretic um, would would be um, Probably one of the first things that would happen, maybe some BiPAP could help as well. Um, but the diuretic is what's really going to do the trick and some enhanced oxygen support while we wait for that diuretic to work. That's generally what I see. Okay. Musculoskeletal. I had a professor in nursing school who was from Canada and she said musculoskeletal. And I just thought that was so cute. Musculoskeletal. So this would be how well the patient, um, what their mobility is like. So, you know, there's a blank space there. This is where I might say ambulate with assist or uses a walker or um, getting up to the cardiac chair, something like that. So the cardiac chair, if you hear somebody mention that, that's a special chair that's the kind of the coolest chair we have in the hospital. It lays completely flat like a gurney. And it will just go right up next to the patient's bed. And then you just, so this would be like, say you've got a patient who's been there, they're acutely ill, they have a trach, and you want to help that, you know, you want to be rehabbing them as much as you can. They can't get up and walk around. They're so weak. So we start them off in something like the cardiac chair. So this chair, it's pink. I don't know what color it is where you are, but at our hospital, it's a pink chair. But it lays completely flat like a bed, like a gurney. And you wheel it over and you put it right next to the patient's bed and then you slide them over onto this cardiac chair and you put the safety belts on around their, um, I think it's more like around their hips, around their abdomen um, area so they don't slide out because these patients are so weak they cannot hold themselves up in a chair, um, especially initially. And then you... Um, set it up into a chair position and you can choose the height you know it can go up to the 90 degrees or be more like a 70 or 60 um, you know whatever so as much as the patient can tolerate the more they sit up the more you know core strength they're going to develop their trunk um, and exercising their lungs so the cardiac chair is awesome but the coolest thing about the cardiac chair is that when you're ready to get the patient back to bed you lay, uh, you lay them back down, you take off the straps, blah, 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 and then you put the chair, or the chair, now it's a gurney, like a slab, you put it right next to the patient's bed, and it has this cool feature where you crank this handle, and it just slide, it just moves the top layer of the cardiac chair, like a mattress thing, pad, over to their bed, and they're back in bed so easy. It is the coolest thing ever. So anyway, that's something I would put under musculoskeletal. Sorry, I went off on a little bit of a tangent there. Um, and then below that, you see some check boxes. So SCDs are the sequential compression devices. Those are scuds, we call them. Those are those things that we put on the patient's legs to... Um, keep their uh, blood flow going, improving venous return so that that blood doesn't pool and become static in their lower extremities and lead to a deep vein thrombosis. So a lot of patients, especially the ones on bed rest, will have their scuds on. TEDs are TED hose. I don't see those so much in the um, where I work, but you might see it more with your... Um, like say you're working at a skilled nursing facility or a rehab facility, you might see them there. If you're working at a clinic and patients are coming in, patients will wear these TED hose um, at home. These would be the patients that need that improved um, 
peripheral blood flow. So TED hose are really hard to get on, by the way. Boots would be if they're wearing specialty boots. We have these boots that help prevent foot drop and that help um, prevent the heels from getting pressure ulcers on them. Special bed would be if they're on any kind of a specialty bed. Sling. Um, I think when I made this sheet. Not every patient had a sling. Not every patient does in the ICU because we use these overhead lifts. So that's kind of moot at this point. Um, and then ambulating. If they're ambulating and they're doing and they're rock star at it, then I would check that and I wouldn't have to worry about them as much anymore. Okay. For skin, if it's clear, checkbox there, super gold star dressing. Maybe they had a surgery and I want to make sure I keep an eye on the dressings. I want to know where they are. Um, sometimes Procedures will have an anterior approach and a posterior approach. So you want to make sure you know where the dressings are, okay? And then wounds, if they have any wounds, hopefully we didn't cause them any, but you want to keep an eye. We take photos of them every Sunday. So um, that's just something to be aware of so that you can monitor those. Okay, and then... Drains would be any drains usually associated with surgery like a hemovac or a JP drain or something like that. You want to make sure that you keep track of those, know where they are, and are checking their output and emptying them at appropriate intervals. IV sites you want to keep track of. PIV means peripheral IV, or do they have a central line? Do they have a pick line? And then other, this is where I might write if they've got an AV graft, a fistula, or a, well, swan I already checked up in cardiac. Um, let's see if there's any other kind of line, something, and I don't have a space for it, I'll put it here, a dialysis catheter, something like that. Okay, and then down below that is, you'll see an abbreviation, GTTS. That means drip. I don't know where it comes from, but it means drip. <laughs> and so in the ICU especially, patients will be on multiple drips. So there's space for seven here. Um, if the patient has more than seven drips, they're super sick. But let's say they've got a fentanyl drip. Let's say they've got something for sedation like a propofol drip. Maybe they also have a, uh, a norepinephrine to keep their blood pressure up drip. Maybe they also have, let's see, what's another drip they could have? Dopamine to keep their heart kind of, you know, forcefully contracting drip. So they may have multiple drips. Maybe they're on an insulin drip because they're septic and their blood sugar is out of control. So you would list all their drips there and what rate they're going at. And then for that next section, this is kind of the infection section. I want to know if the patient's screening for sepsis and if they are, if it's severe, you know, septic shock, whatever. I also want to know what their lactate is, especially if they're septic. Hopefully that's back down within normal limits. CVP, again, we used to really guide our sepsis fluid therapy by CVP. That is changing. We are using more of this non-invasive cardiac output monitoring, which you'll learn about more in your advancement surge if you're not there yet. Um, so don't worry about that right now. So just know that CVP is a way that we can look at central venous pressure in that like um, that right atrium. And it tells us about the patient's fluid volume status is what it's about. Um, a lot of patients with sepsis need fluid. So that's why we want to know what their fluid volume status is. And we can actually get that from the NICOM. And I, it must be that the studies are showing it's more reliable data because that's what we're using. SCVO2 is mixed gas. If you're interested in learning about that, you can look for mixed gas as a search term on the website, and I have um, information on that there as well. And then I like to list out the patient's antibiotics simply because I, I want to know what they're taking because it could come up in rounds, it could come up in conversations with pharmacy or the MD, and some antibiotics are not given, you know, around the clock. So that might not be on your shift, but you need to know about it. Like, let's say they're getting vancomycin once a day, but it's not on your shift. So if you didn't know about it from report and from looking through the patient's chart, it might not be on the top of your radar because it's not a med that you're giving. Same with Leviquin. A lot of times Leviquin is given sometimes like every 48 hours. So you might not have given it and the nurse on the shift before you might not have given it. So it could easily get lost in the conversation. So I like to make a quick list of the antibiotics that the patient is on. And then if they are septic, there are these um, bundles and time frames. So you want to know what time they got the antibiotic because you want to make sure that you're meeting your bundle elements with that.
And then if they, let's say they spiked a fever, got really tachycardic, they looked like they were getting an infection, you'd want to know where the cultures done. Did we do cultures? Did we do blood? Did we do sputum? Did we do urine? What did we do? If someone says the patient was pan-cultured, they mean they were cultured basically for everything, which would be the blood cultures, the urine cultures, and some sputum cultures. Okay, in the next section, I like to list lab draws that I will be doing. Let's say if you listened to my episode last week about the patient with the GI bleed, you know, maybe I'm doing H&HQ six hours. I'm going to write that right here, okay? And then K, Mag, Foss, and Calcium, you'll see those listed there. We have protocols for these electrolyte replacements, and if the patient is on any of those protocols, I'll check those so that it cues me in to keep an eye on those levels, replace and recheck as needed. And then for AccuChecks, um, that's the glucometer to check their blood sugar. I want to know, am I doing them at all? Um, am I doing them before meals? Am I doing them every four hours? Am I doing them every hour because they're on an insulin infusion? Whatever it is, I need to know how often to do my blood sugar checks. For parameters, this is where I like to write any special parameters that the MD has for the patient. So maybe I have a blood pressure goal to keep their mean arterial pressure above 60. I'm going to write that down here, especially because, you know, the standard, the norm is above 65. So if it's anything, especially if it's anything a little bit out of the normal, I want to write it down. Or what are my ICP goals if I've got a patient with a neurological injury and I want to keep um, that ICP um, below a certain level, or call MD for an ICP above 20, or whatever it is. I want to know what my parameters are. And then below that, I'm going to jot down what PRNs the prior nurse gave and the PRNs that I give on my shift. I want to know what's working for the patient, maybe what they tried that didn't work. Very important to know, um, especially if they've been getting pain medication, maybe the patient didn't like how the fentanyl made them feel, but the Norcos were fine, you know, so whatever it is. And then down at the bottom, we get into the R of the S bar, and that's recommendation. What does the patient need? So a lot of times um, at the end of report and the nurse has told me everything, they have a really good picture of the patient and all the things that they've been able to accomplish, but there might be some things that maybe it was night shift and there wasn't an intensivist on. And when they called the, you know, whoever was covering, they just said, have the day shift deal with it. Okay, this happens a lot. So what does a patient need? So maybe they're like, yeah, that he really needs to go to CT scan. I'm worried about his belly. Or he really needs electrolyte replacement protocols or whatever. So write down what the needs are that you think the needs are and bring those up when you do a rounding with the team. Okay, sometimes um, they'll agree with you and sometimes they'll have other ideas and that's totally fine. But have an idea of the things that you think the patient might need that you want to ask for when the MD comes around so that you can get all your needs hopefully taken care of all at once when they do that first rounding. And then I have a section for my to-do list. This is where I just write random things that I need to do. And then you'll see a section there with a bunch of like labs. I like to keep track of labs. Um, Depending on what's going on with the patient, I'll zero in on certain ones. And then you'll notice there's space for multiples. So um, for some patients, they're getting labs just once a day, and this would cover me for three days taking care of the same patient. Some patients, again, are getting maybe serial labs, we call them. So maybe they're getting a basic metabolic panel every four hours. So there's some space there to write out, you know, your consecutive lab results so you can follow those trends. And then miscellaneous would be just any miscellaneous stuff like... Patient has his wallet in the hospital safe. I could write that there so that we don't forget to get him his wallet before he leaves. So that is a quick look. Well, I guess that wasn't really quick. That was 53 minutes. Um, a look at what a brain sheet for an ICU patient um, looks like and how it functions. And then as you go throughout your shift, you will write down in the appropriate area any changes, any new information, any new interventions, any um, changes in condition, any declines, any improvements, any changes in the treatment team um, uh, plans, any changes in how much oxygen they're on or whatever it is. And so that when you go on to give report now at the end of the shift, now you've got your updated information to give to the next nurse. So what I like to do is take report in one color, 
ink and then jot down my changes in another color so that I can easily and quickly see um, the changes that occurred. And then if I have the same patient, the next day, I'll leave my report sheet in my locker at work. Don't ever leave the hospital with the patient information. But I'll come back the next day and use yet another color for that day. So I can sometimes make these sheets last a whole three days. They get really full and kind of messy, but it's a great overview of what the patient has gone through in the, the days that I've been there taking care of them. Okay, so now let's move on and just quickly go through what this might look like. You're not going to have a report sheet this in-depth if you're taking care of multiple patients because you don't need to. You don't have that um, complex of a patient to deal with. You have other goals, which are namely getting that patient to discharge. So let's take a quick look at what a multiple patient report sheet might look like. Okay, so look at the other report sheet that I provided for you guys, and you'll notice right away that there's not nearly as much space. You've got two patients sharing an eight and a half by 11, and it's also double-sided. So if you print this double-sided, you would have space for four patients. So this is just, again, these are just the things that I use. Your facility may have one that they um, require or strongly suggest you use, and that's totally fine. Um, I just found that it worked better for me if it was the way my brain works. Um, and then, so if you're, you know, if this doesn't quite work for you or the unit that you're on, absolutely make your own. Always highly recommend that people create their own resources. Okay, but here's an example and a starting point. So in this one, again, same type of things at the top. Um, a, an addition to it might be on that second line where it says P-O-D and then a pound sign. That's post-op day number one what. You want to know if it's post-op day one versus post-op day five, because patients will follow specific clinical pathways based on the day of their surgery. You know, post-op day one for your um, patients might be Foley is out. They're sitting in the chair for all meals. Post-op day two might be they get to shower because their pacemaker wires are out and they are going to be walking in the hallway. You know, so just know what post-op day they are on if they are indeed a surgical patient. And then we have a small space for their past medical history. Not a ton of space here, guys. So for this, for these patients that are not critical, I would just write things that pertain to the care that you're providing. You don't have to go into the appendicitis they had when they were six years old. But if they're there for their acute kidney injury, you know, you could put um, under past medical history, you know, HD, meaning they're on hemodialysis, they have type 2 diabetes, and they have high blood pressure. Those are things that you're going to be actively treating and monitoring while they're there, okay? So just put down the things that are relevant. Background, any, you know, came in on, you know, you've got their surgery and their admit day, but maybe background could be ICU, then surgery, intubated for two days, and now they're here, you know, so just the super, super highlights, the very, the 30,000 foot view, as it were. And then plan, what is the plan for the patient? Again, I said, when you're working on the floor, you're really looking at getting patients discharged. So you want to know what the plan is. Um, maybe the plan is that they need their um, durable medical equipment, their DME. They need that stuff at their house before they get home. Or maybe the plan is they need to um, work with PT and be able to show that they can walk 100 feet before the doctor's comfortable letting them go. Or maybe the plan is this patient's going to go to rehab or whatever it is. Know what the plan is for your patient. For their neurostatus, there's that same 4321 there. For their cardiac, I've got the ejection fraction space and something that says DW. That's daily weight. A lot of patients, especially your heart failure patients, will be weighed every day. And you have to know what their daily weights are because that tells us about their fluid status. Uh, heart failure patients have a tendency to retain fluid. So we want to know if their weight has gone up drastically. Um, for respiratory, what's their O2 sat? Um, it says sat, and then there's a blank line, and it says percent, and then it says on. So for instance, you would say 
98% on three liters nasal cannula. Or um, SAT is 91% on 10 liters non-rebreather. Those are very different oxygen uh, requirements for a patient. And then TX would be any treatments, you know, respiratory treatments that the patient's getting. Are they scheduled? Are they PRN? Etc. And then for GI, you know, again, the tubes, I've got uh, NG tube, G tube, J tube. Um, you could also add PEG tube there. Just what is it? Where is it? And then their last bowel movement and what diet they are on. And then for GU, their genitourinary status, I want to know, you know, the color of their urine. That can tell me how hydrated or dehydrated they are. Is it amber? If it's dark, that's usually a sign that they, they might need more fluid. If it's yellow, straw-colored, straw would be very dilute urine. Um, if it's clear, cloudy, if it's odorous, you know, meaning they could have a UTI, some kind of an infection, you want to know about that. And then next, I want to know, are they voiding spontaneously? That's... Way easier for me if they are, right? Um, do they have a Foley? Are they getting up to the bedside commode? Are they incontinent? And do they have a UTI? UTI, um, it's good to know if they already have a confirmed UTI. That way, if you're seeing that, um, you know, that cloudy, foul-smelling urine, you know, okay, they're already addressing this. If they don't, and then you start seeing that, you know it's new, you know it's a change. And also with the UTI, you can anticipate the patient needing to urinate more frequently just because of the, you know, how that um, exacerbates their frequency and their urgency about having to urinate. So being aware of that as well. For IV sites, I'm going to list those. I might also write myself a note if my tubing is due to be changed. The next spot asks about IV fluids. Sometimes these patients are on um, fluids, but usually, you know, a lot of times they're drinking enough that they don't need IV fluids. So just to know um, if they are. And then skin, is it clear? Do they have wounds? Do they have um, anything that I need to be aware of? Any pressure ulcer issues? And then right below that, what dressing changes am I going to be doing? How often are they done? And then we want to know about our drains and our tubes, of course, and any lab draws that we will be doing. And then you see in that next column over, it says AccuCheck ACHS. So ACHS means before meals and at bedtime. And I know you're thinking, why? Well, because of Latin. Okay, so AC, I forget what it means, but it's an abbreviation for a Latin term that means before meals. So this patient will get their blood sugar checked before breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then HS stands for hour of sleep, Bedtime. So uh, your patients with diabetes, you'll be checking their blood sugars most likely before meals and an hour of sleep, sometimes also around 2 a.m.-ish, I think, where there's a risk for hypoglycemia. And then those three spaces are where I like to keep track of what their three most recent readings were. Again, following trends is way more useful when you're looking at a patient than looking at just one value at one moment in time. And then we can go into our previous PRNs. What did the nurse on the prior shift give? And right below that, you see a list for the PRNs that I'm going to give or that I gave. Okay, off to the right there. Uh, lots of space for jotting down vitals. Again, I think this is just helpful to have that quick snapshot of their, you know, vital sign changes over the last shift or what have you, keeping track of that. And then I's and O's, we talked about that in the uh, ICU patient sheet. So PS is prior shift. I kind of want to know what they got on the prior shift. And then um, that would be in and out, especially if the patient is on fluid restriction. And that fluid restriction is for 24-hour period. So if um, I'm coming on to the night shift and the patient's on a 1500 mil fluid restriction, I need to know how much they got on the day shift. So if they got 1200 mils on the day shift, then they can only have 300 with me. So hopefully they sleep for most of that time, but um, it's just, you got to know that information. And then the I's and O's down there, um, you know, the plus sign is for what they took in. A minus sign would be if it came out. And then you can say like at what time. And then at the bottom there, their total in for your shift, their total out. The computer will um, 
tally this for you, but I find I like to have it on my sheet for a quick giving of report at the end of the day. And then we already talked about the PRNs that we gave. And then over here on the right of that are the precautions. You remember on the um, ICU sheet, I was like, I don't really have a good space for this, so I'm going to stick it way up here. It's way down here on this sheet, and this would be F is for fall. BLD is for bleeding, if they're on bleeding precautions, if they are a bleeding risk. ASP would be if they are an aspiration risk. Maybe they had a stroke and they have dysphagia and they can't swallow well. So they are at a risk for aspirating. Seizure, um, I thought that that would be a good addition to the other one. It's on this one. Um, contact, air, and droplet precautions would be your isolation precautions. And then for their activity, ad lib means the patient can get up as they need. They're safe. They can manage doing that on their own. They're up ad lib. They can go walk around, what have you. Uh, bed rest for how many hours. That little circle means hours. So I would write like six in that spot if they had to be on bed rest for six hours. Sometimes after certain procedures, the patient does need to be on bed rest for a certain and very um, specific prescribed amount of time. BRP, again, that's that bathroom privileges, ambulating, AMB, are you getting them up and walking them three times a day up and down the hallway, out of bed to chair, that's the OOB with the CH next to it. That means we're getting the patient out of bed to chair. Typically, we coincide this with meals. And then any allergies would be listed as well. NKDA means no known drug allergy. Circle that and then you're good to go. They Now, just because they have no known drug allergies doesn't mean they don't have any allergies. They could still have a lactose allergy. They could still um, have an allergy to tape. Some patients have an allergy to tape or latex. So you want to make sure that you specify any other allergies that aren't necessarily drug related that they could still have and their care could be impacted by that. And then a small space right below that for some labs that you want to follow. And then a little space for a short to-do list. So there you go, guys. That is an in-depth look at how I use the brain sheet or report sheet, as it is also called, to um, help that continuity of care so that I can receive the information I need and report and then just as importantly, provide the oncoming nurse with a clear picture of the patient at the end of my shift. Uh, before I let you go, I do want to remind you guys, for those of you that are starting nursing school soon, I do have a whole course that teaches you about dosage calculations. And that course is open all the time. It's called Dosage Calculations Bootcamp, and I will link to it um, in the show notes. And you can go to straightynursingstudent.com forward slash 108 to get that as well. And if you happened to listen to this while you were driving, I hope you got something out of it or while you were out walking, I want you to come back and listen to it again when you have time to sit there with that sheet in front of you because it will make a lot more sense and resonate and connect with you a lot more. So again, go to straightynursingstudent.com forward slash 108 and I'll have links right there for you to make it easy for you to find them. Okay, and then next week, you guys come back and we will be talking about a pharmacology episode. We're going to be talking about something called Heliox, and it's kind of cool. So I want to see you back here next week talking about Heliox with me. Have a great week, and I will chat at you then. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. <laughs>